Listeners, before we dive into our show today, I want to share something truly enlightening with you. A cozy spot in Midtown Toronto where the future of wellness isn't a pill or a potion, but something as simple and pure as light. I'm talking about the Toronto Light Therapy Clinic. And the best part is it's owned by an alumnus. And this is not just any clinic. We're talking about two fully furnished treatment rooms, each one a little oasis of calm right in the heart of the city. Imagine stepping into this space, ready to experience the transformative power of red light and infrared light therapy. They've got the latest gear to make sure you're getting the full body treatment. You didn't even know you needed. And the team is top notch. The certified staff at the clinic are committed to tailoring a wellness journey just for you, starting with a complimentary consultation. Whether you're seeking to rejuvenate your body, enhance your health, or simply bask in the glow of light therapy, they're there to guide you every step of the way. Remember, your comfort and transformation are their top priorities. I know it was when I was there. So visit torontolighttherapy.ca to book your session or learn more about their services. So why not embrace the radiant path to well-being? Give it a try, and I promise you'll see the light. There is so much of Newman. I mean, he's a universe. He's not a world. Three lousy miracles. <laughs> Newman was born in 1801 and died in 1890. I understand two of them was card tricks. Famously, James Joyce thought that he, he and Lord Byron were the two best pro stylists of the 19th century. Hello, Newman. Tell the world my story. You're bluffing. Welcome to The Bluff, a podcast where we interview members of our school community, past and present, to keep alumni, staff, students, and parents connected. Today is episode one, Heart Speaks to Heart, and I'm your host, Joe D'Aquila. Please welcome our guest today, friend, colleague, and our resident expert on the life of John Henry Newman, our very own Mr. Chris Ray. Good afternoon, Mr. Ray. Welcome to The Bluff. Good afternoon. I couldn't hear you for a second there. I just saw I was muted, and, uh, so I just have to get that. Well, you look good and ready to work on the podcast today. Thank you, considering I'm a bit of housebound like everybody, I guess. Well, such is the world that COVID gave us. I would obviously rather be doing this in the studio with you, but uh, that doesn't seem to be in the cards for the next little while anyways. It'll be a miracle if this pandemic is over by March, which brings me to my first question. Newman has recently become elevated to sainthood. How does this happen? Because to be honest, for the longest time, I was under the impression that it all had to do with counting miracles. But I'm pretty sure that's because everything I know about how saints become saints came from Don Novello's character on Saturday Night Live. If you're not familiar with the character, here's a clip. To become a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to be able to prove four miracles. That's the rules. It's been the rule for hundreds and hundreds of years. But this saint and a Satan, they could only prove three miracles. But the Pope, he just waved the fourth one. Just waved it. We got some Italian people, they got 40, 50, 60, 70 miracles to their names. They can't get in. And this is Saint and a Satan American. Three lousy miracles. 
I understand two of them was card tricks. <laughs> Surely more goes into it than just counting miracles. That's correct. And, uh, and there is no defined number these days. Things have changed so much. And off, I think since 1983 or something like that, uh, like Pope John Paul II kind of really changed things around. Originally, the, you know, the, the, the code for choosing saints and the X number of miracles was in the 1917 canon code of the Catholic Church. And then we come into the 80s and then John Paul II uh, changed that a lot. And he, he's the, the Pope who's now canonized more saints than anybody else, you know. And interesting that the priests are talking about, you know, miracles being waived well, that's true. This is what happens. And uh, so now um, I think like for Newman, only uh, there were only two new miracles required. Um, I think for Mother Teresa, when she was um, canonized, uh, they talked about waving miracles. So it depends on the nature of who the saint is and um and the and the desire of the people really it's like almost the popular acclaim tends to dictate how long the process takes and maybe well maybe we could have just two miracles made than the three and that sort of thing which is what's been happening so you never know from one to the next and pope francis has done the same you know, it used to be many, many years before a saint was, as we say, you know, elevated to sainthood. It used to be incredible numbers of years. But now, of course, here we have John Henry Newman beatified in 2010 and canonized in 2019. That is a very, a relatively very short period. But I know for when Pope John Paul II was canonized, that was even shorter time after his beatification, yeah. Is there an established and definitive process to the whole thing? Well, well, yes. I mean, there is a process, and I think it's still pretty much followed, that people or some group of people within the church will say, well, we should put this person forward for sainthood, for canonization. And... Newman has always been somebody, for example, who has had a group of people who have admired him for many, many things. And, um, and that grows over the years. But when a certain case is presented, they'll say, go to Rome, to the Vatican office that deals with the promotion of saintly causes, and say, here's this person. And he'll often be, or she will be promoted to the rank of what's called venerable. And um, Newman was uh, a venerable for, for a long, long time. So they begin as a servant of God, but then they become venerable. And then after all that processing of looking into the person's life and then the requirement of the miracles, they're um, beatified and then subsequently canonized. They used to have what's called in the process of um, canonization, the role of the devil's advocate. You know, so they'd call in someone, a priest or someone who would go into all the murky details, <laughs> if there were any, of that person's life and say, well, uh, we can't really make this person a saint because, look, they did X, Y, or Z. And uh, I don't know how that would go down today. But um, it would have to be something pretty contrary to what we would call a virtuous life. And that's what they're actually sainted on. 
not really, oh, did they do this miracle or that miracle, but rather, do they stand out in terms of a virtuous life, of living the virtues of faith and hope and charity and patience? All these things are brought into the mix. And so if a person can be deemed to be an excellent example and mentor in those areas, then they're often considered a very strong possibility. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Bluff 416 or check us out on Facebook at The Bluff Podcast. Keeping alumni, current staff and students connected to life on the bluff. Now, Newman is famous for writing the words, and many of our teachers, alumni, and staff in the community know them well. To live is to change, and to live perfectly is to have changed often. What does that mean in practical terms? Understanding of God, of what we believe, is a changing thing. Our understanding is evolving. Not the truths themselves evolve into something else. Truth is truth. How did Newman come to have these new insights on the changing nature of ideas? How did those ideas come to him? In his own personal life, he had to face or made these particular changes that he knew were important for him in terms of his own growth as not only in personhood, but as a, as a person who is called by God. For example, he, he began his life in a somewhat what would have been called in the day a low church Anglican family. His father was a sort of nominal Anglican and his mother was fairly evangelical. And I think really going to university, going to Oxford, brought about a whole new cache of ideas for him, if you like. And, and with the kind of mind, he was known as a very powerful intellect. And with his mind, he was able to chew over these and develop his own way of thinking so that eventually he became the vicar of St. Mary's Oxford, which was a very prestigious position in university circles, not only university circles, but generally in the Anglican church. And every Sunday night, I believe he would give these sermons, so-called sermons on particular religious themes, and, and they would always be fresh and innovative uh, ideas. And he had a, that's had a huge influence on a lot of the thinking that was there. Also, um, what he wanted to do was, along with some friends of his, eventually began what is called the Oxford Movement. And they together kind of got this movement going of new ideas. And they would, you know, and, and they put out these what were called tracts or pamphlets and sort of uh, publicize them for people to think about. But what he wanted to do was say, let's get back to the early church in terms of the more universal-minded approach to faith and people and ecclesiology or church, what church was. They want to get back to the more pristine um, beginnings of what they saw as Catholicism beginning in the early church and to see how is the Anglican church faithful to that and how can we let that breathe again in our life and worship. These new emerging ideas that you speak of, um, that Newman and the Oxford movement had, were they widely influential? And if so, how? He had an enormous effect on the, or influence, you could say, on the Second Vatican Council. And so following on from that, you know, the whole developing that theology of openness 
and uh, the role of laity and all that kind of thing. He was very instrumental and wrote a lot about that kind of thing. And so I know he had a, a big impact on, on, say, some of the thinkers, lead thinkers in the Second Vatican Council. And that's probably kept on going since then. And so we're in a church now where many of our lead thinkers, uh, we have all sorts of <laughs> polarizations going on. But in terms of a developing sense of who we are, of our relationship to God, who is God, you know, all that kind of thing. In the Second Vatican Council that was largely led, opened by Pope John Paul XXIII, but largely led by Pope Paul VI. Um, and Pope Paul VI was an, a huge fan of Cardinal Newman. In fact, um, I remember reading when I was a boy the biography of Pope Paul VI and reading how he had all these, the full works almost of Newman and his own, own library shelves. So that kind of made a big impression on me. Today's topic, miracles. Although English speakers regularly use the term miracle to refer to a broad range of wondrous and oft-hyperbolically described events, the biblical conception is limited to those not explainable solely by natural processes, but which require the direct casual agency of a supernatural being, usually God. We all need miracles now and then. For example, we might wish for miracles to happen to us from time to time. Like, if I pass this exam, it'll be a miracle. Or, if my kids fall asleep before 7pm, it'll be a bloody miracle. And now, back to our podcast. I just want to shift gears a little bit here and ask you if Anglicanism underwent any changes as a result of the philosophies, the new philosophies of Cardinal Newman and his contemporaries. Anglicanism did begin to change and um, in terms of becoming more Catholic in its understanding of itself. So you get up springing up new religious orders within the Anglican Church. You start getting people who want to kind of go with this new uh, movement, these new movements within the church. And that in turn affects the society at large. So a lot of these new movements or orders were um, groups of men or women that we know as, say, brothers or sisters and uh, groups of priests who would go work in the society that, that would be works of charity, be hospitals, education, and uh, affecting change in those ways. Um, that brought about maybe, I think, what was Newman's ideal of faith really touching into the experience of real people, not just being an intellectual thing. And he was an intellectual, but he had this amazing facility to um, be in touch with others. Newman eventually converts to Catholicism. Could you maybe uh, elucidate a little bit on the circumstances uh, surrounding this? Yeah. So, as I say, beginning this Oxford movement as an Anglican priest with others, he came to gradually understand and, and had to set aside his old prejudices against Rome and eventually come to admit to himself, you know what, I think the Roman church is what I'm looking for. And uh, so he made that huge decision, well, before 1845, but he actually did become a Catholic in 1845. Um, and that was 
an incredibly radical decision at the time. And so he also had to forfeit his reputation, his privilege, his position as Vicar of St. Mary's Oxford. And that was a big thing. And he lost a number of friends over that. You know, they thought he had betrayed the church of which they had grown up, of which had nurtured them. So essentially, Newman's decision was a matter of following his own conscience, which is not an easy thing to do when your contemporaries are pressuring you. And that, that's very right, Joe, because, you know, one of the things that he, we know Newman to uh, have been strong about was the role of conscience in determining who we are and, uh, and what it is that we ought to believe. And it was his conscience. And, and I think it was that thinking about conscience, developing his own uh, thought and and rationale about what conscience is and its role in the life of faith that brought him to say, I have to, I cannot do anything else now but become a Roman Catholic. He talks about that little light in the darkness mm-hmm. um, leading him on, you know, despite the night that presses on him and so forth. Why do you think the story of Newman appealed to you the way that it did? because of something similar for me going on. Now, I was, I grew up in a Protestant household. Well, we weren't, they weren't religious, but what influenced me was uh, uh, Anglicanism, but a fairly low church Anglicanism. But again, I, I too, like, like Newman was questioning I don't put myself on any par with Newman, by the way, but but I, in reflection later, I thought, oh, my God, this guy is sort of, I, I can relate to this guy. And then when I was 14, I read his work, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which um, recounts his decision. And it's almost like autobiographical in a way, but his decision to... Uh, for that journey, for those changes that were in his life and to becoming Catholic and why he became Catholic and so forth. And uh, I remember having read the Apologia, that was tremendously influential on me. I said, I love this guy. You know, I can sort of, oh, my God, he's giving me license in some way to do what I want to do, you know. And so I became a Catholic. And again, that was a decision that a lot of people said, oh, for goodness sake, what do you want to become a Catholic for? You've got it all here, you know, you're, and everything else. And uh, I'll just tell you the story. I, it was the uh, weekend after, or the week after I had become a Catholic and I was 18 years old and I was going to university, my first year of university. On the next Monday morning, I was catching the bus to go into university and there was a woman sitting uh, at the bus stop. And she she was one of the Anglican congregants that I recognised. And and she had this big fox fur flung around her. And she looked at me because I, I used to play the organ and was involved with the Anglican church. And um, so, and she looked at me and said, said, oh, my God. She said, I believe you've become a Roman Catholic. And I said, yes, that's correct. She said, oh, I could never do such a thing. It would be like selling my birthright, she said. Oh, my word. I never forget it. I thought, oh, well, there we are. And so, But thankfully, most people's reactions weren't as uh, dramatic as that. <laughs> I'll never forget it.
The story of Newman's life is very fascinating. I'm fascinated by it, and uh, obviously you are, and people in theology and religious studies are. But what can the average teenager in our community take away from his story? Um, Young people today do struggle with very important questions about their own lives, their direction, but also about what faith, what spirituality does mean. You know, and uh, I uh, often get annoyed with people who say, uh, well, kids today have no no faith, no no sense of the spiritual, whereas they do. But it is one that uh, we may not identify as fitting within certain um, norms you know, of, of thinking. So I think Newman speaks to these people of struggle because he struggled himself as a young person for belief. What do I believe? Um and I think even though he had this terrific intellect, it was also a bit of a burden, I would suspect. I'm just talking off the top of my head here, but I suspect that it is, was because it allows this whole um, body of questions to arise and surface, I'm sure, for an own self about what was important and what wasn't and which direction to go. And so... I think what for students today, making good choices for themselves, just as Newman, even though he's, what, 19th century, doesn't matter, he also had to make choices for himself. To go against the grain, to go against the flow, um, similarly, uh, young people are faced with those sorts of things. What is essentially important is that you be who you are that you follow your conscience. Your conscience is that voice within you that tells you who you are. And that's what essentially he develops in his writings and also would preach about. We use at Newman, heart speaks to heart. Essentially, that's what that is. The heart of God speaks within our heart. Newman is saying, let's listen to that. What's your heart saying? Because that's the vox dei, that's the voice of God. And it may not even be the strongest um, voice, but it may be the most persistent voice. The Bluff Podcast is produced and recorded for St. John Henry Newman Catholic Secondary School in Scarborough. Newman had a profound influence on your decision to be ordained as a Catholic priest. Could you maybe shed some light on that life experience? I was ordained in 1984, um, and then uh, I eventually finally took leave in 2004. So I've had a good 20 years uh, in pastoral ministry as a priest. I was also a university chaplain. Uh, I was involved in teaching in a Catholic school, and I've been involved in parish work. Um, so, and all that time, uh, yes, you know, you know, if anybody said to me, who's been an amazing influence on you, I would have said John Henry Newman. Before you go, I just want to thank you for coming on the Bluff Podcast. You've been a fantastic and extremely informative guest. Well, thank you very much, Joe. It's been my pleasure and uh, to talk about and to share with somebody who's not only personally uh, important to me, but also somebody who's very much part of the school that I've been attached to for the last number of years. And uh, I wish you all the best. All the best to you. We'll have to have you back one day. Newman's life is an example that all people, regardless of their age, could follow. To live like Newman is to be guided by conscience. 
to listen to that voice inside us all, which is not always the loudest, but is often the most persistent voice we hear. It's not easy to go against the grain, but in doing so, we find truth and new ways of understanding ourselves. Newman's example dares us to listen to that voice inside that tells us who we are, to follow, as our guest today said, that little light in the darkness, to allow ourselves the happiness that we all deserve, to do the hard thing, because doing the hard thing is often doing the right thing. So there you have it, a new saint, a new school, but the same Newman, always home.